Good morning, Willow Hills. Really good to be here with you uh, and worship with you. I, I first want to say thank you to Sandra Unger for doing an outstanding job last week. Wasn't she? She's a gift. Just such a gift, such a gift. Yeah, uh, so the, the book's finally done. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Ten years that's been uh, brewing. And I want to emphasize at the very start of this that what I'm going to be sharing here, I, normally I, we, we preach just on, on convictions that we rally around. Uh, you know, the core convictions, and we apply it to different areas of our life. And I'll throw in my opinion on some things here and there, but I, I always let people know that. This is my opinion. Feel free to disagree. Um, but I never do a whole sermon on that, certainly never a whole series on that, until now. And this whole series is going to be, since it's on this theme, it's, 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 in, the, it's in the category of opinion, and I want you to remember that. Uh, this is not the official teaching of Woodland Hills Church. It's not a part of our doctrine. Uh, this is the way Greg solves a particular theological problem. And if it solves that problem for you, uh, great. Uh, if you have a different way of solving the problem or think the problem is just better left alone, that's fine too. Uh, but we just want to make sure that you, you, whether you agree with it or not, you understand what you're agreeing with or not disagreeing with. Because uh, like David said, the rumor mill, uh, they can spin in a lot of different ways. And uh, tribute beliefs to me that aren't even close to accurate. Um, to say that's just my opinion doesn't mean that it's not important, because it, 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 it could be, for some folks, very, very important, uh, especially if the violent portraits of God in the Old Testament has been a problem for you. This could be something that really brings some congruity to your picture of God. Um, I, I know of a few people already for whom they, they say this has salvaged their faith in the Bible as the inspired Word of God. Uh, and it's certainly been very helpful to me in coming to grips with this. But it's, it's just my opinion. I also want to say that I, I'm laying out here a new paradigm. It's a new way of looking at things. Uh, it's actually not new. In the early church, this view, or something like the view I'm sharing here, was widespread. Though, for various reasons I'll get into later on, it came to an abrupt halt in the 4th and 5th centuries. But it's, it's new to people today. And, and so I'm unpacking this kind of paradigm. Every, every message is going to raise questions that other, that, that they'll be answered later on, uh, but they won't all be answered in any one particular message. So I encourage you to consider this like, like a package deal, and, and if at all possible, make it to all four of the, the messages. The fourth one, we're having Bruxy up here, uh, or down here. Bruxy Cavey is a friend of ours, and, and he'll be preaching. And then that night, on April 9th, we're going to have a Q&A. And so as we're going through this whole series, we'll be writing down whatever questions that you have, and we'll try to answer them that night. Uh, let me set up the dilemma this way. This is how I understand the situation we're in when we're confronting the violent portraits of God in the Old Testament. Uh, imagine, and I've shared this story before a couple of years ago, but it's worth sharing again. Imagine that I'm downtown, just walking around, um, going shopping, which I never do, but it's a story, so work with me here. So I'm, I'm walking around, and I notice Shelly on the other side of the street. She just happens to be down there at the same time. And I holler to her, to her, but she can't hear me because there's too much noise with the cars and stuff. And, and I can't run across the street to greet her because there's too many cars. And so I'm just going to watch her, uh, and, and I'll wait till we get to the you know, street corners, and then I'll cross over and greet her. So I'm fondly watching my wife, and as I am watching her, she comes upon a panhandler, a guy in a wheelchair. Looks like he's a veteran or something. He's wearing a veteran's cap. He's selling these little pencils with flags on the top, and he's got a jar to put money in. And, and as I'm seeing Shelly approach this man, I'm thinking, oh, she's probably going to empty her wallet. I know my wife. I've been married 37 years, and I, I know her to be so generous and so compassionate. She's probably going to give this guy more than, than we can afford. 
But imagine if as I'm watching her, she approaches this man, when she gets up to him, she all of a sudden just lets out this blood-curling scream in this guy's face, starts calling him names, and then, then smashes his, his pencils out in the street and smashes his, his money jar uh, in the other direction, and, and then takes off the guy's cap and slaps him in the face and then kicks over his wheelchair and then takes off running. I'd be like, whoa! Menopause is one thing, but this is, this is going out of control. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh, it's like, what on earth? You know, and I know that's my wife. I, I had a clear view of her. But how should I process this? Now, on the one hand, I could think to myself, gosh, 37 years of marriage, and you think you know somebody, and turns out she's got this cruel streak in her. She's probably been sneaking out on Friday afternoons to abuse panhandlers my whole marriage. I could think that. But see, that would be unfaithful to my marriage. It, it calls into question the authenticity of our relationship. I know my wife, and, and there's not a cruel streak in her. So if I'm confident in her character, the only alternative then is to assume that something else was going on here. Something, more is going on than meets the eye. It, it, it couldn't be the case that she was actually doing what it looked like she was doing. Uh, and so I would try to think of scenarios that would explain this. I would maybe imagine, maybe she got recruited into some kind of a sociological experiment and there's some social scientists who are making observations about the way people respond to atrocious situations. And so the, she and this panhandler were just kind of play acting. Or I, maybe I would think that she's got on some reality television show and they're capturing people's horrified looks on their faces because it's going to be really funny when they show it on cable TV later on. Or maybe it's one of those punked shows. You ever see the show Punked? Uh, maybe I'm being punked right now. Maybe somehow she found out I was going to be down there and, and, and there's a camera on me right now capturing my horrified, the horrified look on my face. Or maybe she's part of a, maybe the FBI recruited her because this guy's a, a, a terrorist. He's plotting a, a terrorist attack and, and, and the FBI saw how friendly she was to him every day and so they recruited her to, and she's supposed to cause this major distraction to disrupt the terrorist plot. Okay, it's, they're really out there, I know. And, and they, they, these all seem wildly implausible. But if I'm confident that Shelley is not cruel, the implausible becomes plausible. Yeah, they're, they're a stretch, but they're not as much a stretch as thinking that Shelley could actually be cruel. That is kind of the situation that we're in when we're talking about these violent portraits of God. On the one hand, uh, as I always preach here, and I can't take the time to prove this now. If you're visiting, you're just going to have to trust us on this one. But we're always saying that our, we're called, the, the, the covenant we're part of is, we're called to trust that God's character is fully revealed in Jesus Christ whose ministry and identity is centered on the cross. The cross isn't just one revelation among others. The cross is the full revelation of God. Jesus is the very radiance of God's glory and the exact likeness of his very essence, Hebrews 1.3. Uh, Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father. You don't have to look anywhere else to see the Father. So we're called to trust that God looks exactly like Jesus. And Jesus reveals a God who would... Give his life for every person he ever created. He thought every human being has unsurpassable worth and is worth dying for. Uh, this is a God who would rather die at the hands of his enemies than to slaughter his enemies. Uh, th this is a, a, a God who, who was, he'd rather bear the sin of people, bear their sin, than punish them for their sin. This is a God who, who, who 
is, is opposed to all violence and therefore tells us to be opposed to all violence. And a God who, who loves his enemies and tells us to love our enemies and to bless enemies and therefore tells us to bless enemies. This is a God whose very essence is self-sacrificial love, whose very essence is this nonviolent, self-sacrificial, enemy-embracing, sin-bearing love. That's the God that Jesus reveals. And our call is to trust that, he's a, he, that that's what he's really like. Now, Jesus, in, who we call Lord, and I've got good reasons for think, believing he's Lord, he endorses the Old Testament as fully inspired by God. He quotes it all the time. It's part of his identity. It, it, it's a central aspect of who he is. He, he, he believes it's all inspired. And if I call him Lord, well, then I can't disagree with him. You can't call someone Lord and then correct their theology. So I'm obliged to consider the whole Bible to be God-breathed, as Paul says in, in, in 2 Timothy 3. God-breathed. It was breathed by God. The trouble is, is that that God-breathed book has got some portraits of God that don't look anything like the God is revealed in Jesus Christ. And most Christians aren't aware of just how nasty some of this is because preachers never preach on this and teachers hardly ever teach on this because they don't know what to do with that. And, and, and so most folks aren't aware of just how nasty some of the stuff is in, in, that, in the Old Testament. But you find portraits of God where, where he's commanding his people to engage in genocide and slaughter everybody in a certain region. You find other portraits of God where he says, slaughter everybody, but you can keep the virgins for yourself as, as to enjoy his spoils of war. Uh, you find portraits of God where he's orchestrating uh, women getting raped and orchestrating parents cannibalizing their own children. Five times you find that in the Old Testament. Uh, portraits of, 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 of God orchestrating uh, soldiers ripping the unborn children out of their mother's wombs and things like that. Some really atrocious, horrendous portraits of God. Uh, and... And, and yet I have to believe that all this is God-breathed. So what do you do here? Yes, it looks like God's doing these horrendous things. But if I'm going to trust that, that God is fully revealed in Jesus Christ, I have to assume that something else is going on. Something else is going on here. In fact, it's even worse than that because Jesus himself tells us that all Scripture is about him. In fact, all Scripture is about him and specifically about his dying on the cross, because the cross just sums up everything that he was about. Luke 24, all the prophets of the law, all the writings uh, bear witness to how the Son of Man has to suffer. So the question, folks, the question that I've been wrestling with for 10 years is, how do portraits of God commanding genocide, saying you can keep the virgins to enjoy as spoils of war, uh, causing fetuses to be ripped out of their, uh, the wombs of, of their mother, how do portraits like that Point to the God who's revealed in the cross, the nonviolent, self-sacrificial, enemy-embracing, sin-bearing God who's revealed on the cross. That is the question. That, that's the problem. It's kind of a big one, don't you think? That's, that, 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 that's what we're dealing with here. Um, so something else has got to be going on, and whatever that something else is, it's going to show how all these portraits, even the most graphic, violent portraits of God, bear witness to the nonviolent God who's revealed on the cross. Now, I want to take a little closer look at, at just one of these verses. Um, there are over a thousand passages in the Old Testament where God is depicted as either engaging in violence or commanding violence. Uh, let's just take a look at one of them. And I want to give a, a warning here. Um, I found that it was only when I stopped trying to defend the violent portraits of God that I got to see how, in fact, they point towards that God is revealed on the cross. I found that when I embraced them in all of their ugliness and calling them what they were, some of these portraits, if I found them anywhere else, I would say they're ugly. So how do they all of a sudden become unugly just because they're found in my book? No, if they're ugly, I call them ugly. 
And it was only when I did that, when I embraced their ugliness, that I discovered their beauty and discovered how they actually point to the cross. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you this. The ugly portraits of God, those violent depictions of God, um, they used to be the biggest obstacle for me, the biggest challenge for me, believing the Bible was God's word. This was the biggest hurdle to overcome to do that. I now see those ugly portraits of God and the way they point to the cross as one of the greatest evidences that this book is God-inspired. Uh, it just was a total reframe. But to see how they're beautiful, you have to first appreciate how they're ugly. And so I'm going to be brutally honest here about this one passage of Scripture, at least, and I'm going to raise some honest questions about it. You'll have to just trust me that I believe the whole Bible is divinely inspired. You're going to have to trust me because for the next 15 minutes, it's not going to sound like it. <laughs> it will sound like I'm attacking the Bible, but you'll see when I'm done attacking it that I'm actually defending it. All right, so just hang in there, all right? Let's look at one passage here, Deuteronomy 7. Um, it says, When the Lord your God gives them, them being the Canaanites, over to you and you defeat them, then you must utterly destroy them. Harim, harim. I'll say more of that word in a second. Make no covenant with them and show them no mercy. Show them no mercy. Commanding his people to not have any mercy on them. Uh, if, 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 whatever you see, whatever they do, however they plead for their life, however they beg you to spare the life of their little babies, you are to show them no mercy, but to utterly destroy them. Every man, every woman, every child, every infant, and every animal in certain regions had to be utterly annihilated. The Hivites, the Jebusites, the Hevites, the Termites, all of the ites. They, 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 extinguished, utterly wiped, wiped out. And, and if you feel an ounce of mercy rising up or any kind of compassion, you must suppress that and slaughter them. In fact, in some passages, the Lord threatens to slaughter anyone who doesn't slaughter, anyone who does show mercy. For example, in Jeremiah, it says, uh, accursed is the one who is slack in doing the work of the Lord. And accursed is the one who keeps back the sword from bloodshed. The work of the Lord is bloodshed. And anyone who is slack on that, you slacker, you didn't kill enough people, they are going to be brought under a curse. Now, if Jesus is the full revelation of God, uh, Jesus reveals what God has always been like. And so anything that Yahweh actually did, we have to imagine Jesus doing it. So as a little mental exercise, can you imagine Jesus saying these things, giving this command? Can you imagine Jesus saying to his disciples, I want you to go into that region and I want you to slaughter every man, woman, child, infant, and animal in that area. In fact, it's worse than that because here's the thing. This concept of harim, uh, it, it means to consecrate for destruction. To consecrate for destruction. To devote a people group to the Lord by slaughtering them. It's an act of worship. This is how these people thought about the slaughtering. So we have to envision Jesus saying, hey, as a, as a form of worship to me, go and slaughter those people. Every single one of them. Leave, as it says in Deuteronomy 20, nothing that breathes is to remain alive. And show me that you're praising me by how you slaughter those little babies. Can you imagine Jesus saying that? Here's one thing I never quite understood. Uh, one of the reasons why, allegedly, the, the Canaanites were being punished was because they offered their firstborn children up to Moloch, the god Moloch. They sacrificed their firstborn children. It's a barbaric rite, very barbaric ritual. But isn't there something ironic about the fact that you're going to punish them for offering up their firstborn by going and offering up all of them to your god? 
Don't you sacrifice your children to the Lord, your firstborn to the Lord, and, and so we're going to punish you by sacrificing all of you to our Lord. What's wrong with this picture? It's like me being in a fifth grade classroom trying to teach children not to hit one another, and I do it by draw, bringing out a machine gun and mowing them all down. <laughs> kind of overkill, you think. Yeah. Uh, anyways, just questions that I have about certain things. So I, from my two cents, if I'm trusting, fully trusting that God looks as he's revealed to be in the crucified Christ, if I'm trusting that, I really have trouble seeing God seeing Jesus giving this command and saying as a form of worship, offering up all these people to me, sacrifice them all to me. But at the same time, I have to believe that it's all divinely inspired. Every passage, every picture of God is divinely inspired for the ultimate purpose of pointing us to the cross. And so I have to believe that something else is going on and whatever that something else is, is, is going to explain to me how these portraits point to Jesus Christ on the cross. And for a long time, I tried to defend uh, this violence. I, um, in fact, I, in fact ten, 10 years ago, when I started writing this book, I was going to write a book where I defended it all. Because people were asking me these questions. Why would God say slaughter them all? And, and, and I, I, so I collected all the answers I had accumulated over the years, and I was going to put it into a little book. It was going to be a summer project, that I, a book I could give to people who asked me that question. And I got about 50 pages in this book, and I had to quit. And I had to quit because... I thought, my answers suck. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it, they once seemed so convincing, but they weren't convincing anymore. Uh, for one thing, even, even if, and, and this is what you, folks usually try to do, they, you put the best possible spin on it. Ah, it wasn't quite that bad. Oh, he had reasons for doing it. He, and, and so you put the best possible spin on things. He had to command genocide, and here's why. Um, and even if I did that, even if my explanations worked, which they didn't, but even if they did, I saw 10 years ago that the real challenge isn't to make God look a little less nasty or even a little more nice, but the real challenge is to show how these portraits of God point to the God who's revealed on the cross. And the best explanations in the world don't do that. Beyond that, I just saw all these holes. There's all sorts of holes in my explanations. Um, and if I didn't find them convincing, how could I ask anyone else to find them convincing? So, for example, I'll give one example. One of the reasons that, that, that is usually given for why the Canaanites had to be eliminated, all these different groups in Canaan, why they had to be slaughtered, is that they were idolaters. And God was concerned that, that, that if, if the Israelites are, are cohabitating with these idolaters, then the idolatry is going to wear off on them. So to keep Israel pure, these people had to be slaughtered. I'm sure a lot of you have heard that explanation. Well, I have a couple questions. I'm going to be brutal here. This is going to be tough to hear, but hear me out. Uh, Okay, a couple questions. Number one, if that's, if that's the case, why, why do you have to kill the women and children and the babies? Um, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it have been a little more loving to adopt them into your homes and raise them in a non-idolatrous family? Why punish them for idolatry when they're too young, they can't be guilty of anything? In fact, there's one really bizarre passage in Deuteronomy. Um, listen to this. I'm just giving this as evidence that something else has got to be going on. Uh, when you besiege a town... From uh, for a long time, Yahweh says, Make, making war against it in order to take it. You must not destroy the trees by wielding an axe against them. Come on, you guys. Are trees in the field human beings that they should come under siege from you? Why would you harm an innocent little tree? Now, I'm really got, glad that God is into ecology. I appreciate that. But the logic of this passage is utterly, utterly baffling. If you're going to say spare the trees because they're innocent, why wouldn't you at least spare the dogs, the animals, uh, and, and the, the babies, and the children? Come on. Something else has got to be going on here because that is just bizarre. Here's another question. 
if God had to slaughter these folks to protect the Israelites from their idolatry, why do sometimes are they allowed to keep some of the Canaanites alive? For example, in Numbers 31, Moses tells them to go out and slaughter the Midianites. And so they go out and slaughter the Midianites and burn down their cities. But they decide to spare the women and the children and the sheep and the goats. So they come back to Israel with, the, the, with their, their, their women and, and children, sheep and goats. And Moses is enraged. He's mad. Why? Because they were slack on doing the Lord's work. They didn't kill them all. They're supposed to kill them all. They kept them alive. How dare them? How ungodly. So he's, he's mad. So he's going to say slaughter them all. But then he has a little bit of a change of heart for reasons that the text doesn't tell us. But here's what it says. Now, therefore, Moses says, kill every male among the little ones. Those little boys, those toddlers, slaughter them. And kill every woman that's ever had sex, ever known a man by sleeping with him. But all the young girls who have not known a man by sleeping with them, keep them alive for yourselves. Uh, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Keep them alive for yourselves. No, he doesn't say, oh, you can marry them. Uh, no, he just says, keep alive for yourself. In fact, put it in the ancient Near Eastern context. Enjoying the women after a conquest was considered the reward for the conquest. And that's kind of what's going on here. Spoils the war. As a reward for your victory, you get to have the little girls. Folks, uh, something else is is going on here. Uh, But but here's the the real question. If if the point is to protect from idolatry and to the point where you've got to slaughter everybody, well then, what difference does it make whether you're a virgin or not? Does being a virgin make you non-idolatrous? It, whatever rationale you have for killing the little boys, you also have for killing the little girls. Whatever your motive is for saying you can keep the virgins, it's not about idolatry. It's about rewarding your soldiers for their victory. So it's a gross passage. It's, it's, it's barbaric, and we just got to call it for what it is. Uh, and it, if you believe that this is God-breathed, and I do, then you have to believe something else is going on. And how does a passage like this point to Jesus Christ on the cross? Keep the little virgins alive for you. How does that relate to the cross? Something else is going on here. Okay, here's, here's another question. If you've got to slaughter them because they're so wicked, so nasty, and they're idolatrous, how is it that you find passages like this? Uh, I, uh, Exodus 20. Here's what it says. Uh, 23. I will send, this is the Lord here, giving a plan. I'm going to send pestilence in front of you. We shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. I, I'm not going to drive them out before you in one year, or the land could become desolate. And the wild animals would multiply against you. But I'll do it little by little. I'll drive them out before you until you've increased and possessed the land. Now that sounds like a Christ-like way of doing this. You, you want them, I, God wanted them in that promised land because it's a strategic location to do what, the, the mission that they were called to do. But he's going to slowly have, he's going to make it pesty so that the indigenous people migrate off and then the Israelites can migrate in. And no bloodletting. That sounds like a more Christ-like way of going about this. And you've got to wonder, what happened to that plan? In fact, you find the, the nonviolent plans at several points in Scripture. Uh, what happened to that plan? How do you go from, I'm going to do it slowly and nonviolently, just making it a little bit pesty so they'll naturally migrate off. How do you go from that to slaughter every man, woman, child, infant, and animal? Leave nothing alive that breathes. What happened here? Something, something happened. Something else is going on here, folks. Um, in my opinion, something else is going on here. And uh, the, the, the more fundamental point is this. If they had to be slaughtered because they're so wicked and because of their idolatry, then 
how could God have ever given that plan? How do you, if, if, if early on God didn't want to wipe them out, then the reason they got wiped out can't be because either God got in a really bad mood all of a sudden or they suddenly became super wicked and idolatrous. No, something else is going on here, folks. Something funky. And the final question is this. This is a really big one. We read that just before they go into the promised land, God has a little conversation with Moses and he says this. He says, soon you are going to go down with your ancestors. Moses, you're going to die. And then this people will begin to prostitute themselves to foreign gods in, the midst, in their midst. And gods of the land into which they are going. They will forsake me, breaking my covenant that I've made with them. This is before they go into the land and start slaughtering people. Do you see a problem here? I see a problem here. Would you like me to share with you the problem I'm seeing here? Okay, the plan turned out to not work at all. The Israelites were always tempted by the idolatry of the Canaanites and everybody else around them. Uh, but what really is bugging me is that God tells Moses ahead of time that the plan's not going to work. It's not going to work. They're going to fall. They're going to fall into idolatry. So why would you have them go in, commit genocide on thirteen different people groups in the land of Canaan, what, killing all these babies when you know it's not going to work? Something else is going on here, folks. Uh, and. All of this is supposed to bear witness to Jesus Christ crucified. So have a good day. God bless you all. See you next week. <laughs> okay. Uh, would you like me to give a little hint about what I think is going on here? Something else is going on. And uh, I'll give a little snippet about what I think this something else is. The all-important thing, the all-important question is do we really trust that God is as he's revealed to be in Jesus Christ? And that he's always been the way he's revealed to be in Jesus Christ, whose identity and ministry is centered on the cross. Do we really trust that? And see, this is the most fundamental question to ask because this is the essence of covenant. We're in the New Testament or the New Covenant, and it's all about trusting the character of your covenant partner. So are, are, do we really trust this? Because here's the thing. It's only because I trust that my wife is not cruel because I fully, I'm fully confident of that, 37 years of marriage, I know my wife, and because I know her, that's why I, I say there must be something else going on. What motivates me to, to investigate what else is going on is that I, that I trust my, my wife's character, even when she seems to be acting out of character. If I didn't trust my wife's character, if I thought she had a cruel streak, well then, when I see her act cruelly, I wouldn't be saying, oh, there must be something else going on. Uh, if I didn't trust, fully trust my wife's character, then... The, the, the apparently cruel behavior would tell the whole story. There's nothing else. Nothing else. My wife just is that cruel. Same, same thing here. If, if, we, if we don't fully trust the character of God is revealed in Jesus, then when we come to these violent and horrendous portraits of God in the Old Testament, we allow them to tell the whole story. Oh, I guess God does have this cruel streak in him. He kills babies now and then, commands genocide, and yeah, yeah. Uh, the violent picture of God tells the whole story. But if we rather trust that the cross tells the whole story, then we can't believe that the violent portraits of God tell the whole story. Something else is going on. This is what changed in the early church. A lot of theologians in the first three centuries, they were saying Jesus is the whole story about who God really is. And so these violent portraits of God can't be the whole story. And so they interpreted them in ways where they, they said, what else is going on? They, had, they, had a, they reinterpreted these portraits through the lens of Christ. In the fourth century, when the church inherited all this political power from Constantine and decided that it needed to run the state, now it needed to get used to having violence. And, and now they stopped trusting that Jesus on the cross reveals the whole, whole, whole character of God. And they started, therefore, trusting that the violent pictures of God reveal the character of God, that they tell the whole story. Uh, 
And, and so that's the, 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 the situation we're in. It all comes down to do we fully trust that God is, is revealed in the cross? And my claim here is this. I believe, and this is just my opinion, not the official teaching of the church. This is my opinion. Uh, but that when we, look at, uh, when, when we look at these violent portraits of God, trusting that God's really revealed on the cross, that we can see what else is going on in these portraits. And that what we see going on in these portraits is exactly what we see going on with the cross. Okay, that's my claim. When we look at the cross, or when, when we come to the violent pictures of God, uh, fully trusting that his character is revealed on the cross, we're allowed, we're enabled, we're empowered to see something else going on. And the something else we see going on in these violent portraits is the same something else we see going on with the cross. Okay, now I'll explain that. I'll unpack that. Uh, imagine a guy. Uh, first century Jewish guy, uh, walking around the hillside outside of Jerusalem. Uh, we'll call him Levi Schwartz. Levi Schwartz. He's taking a stroll on the hills just outside of Jerusalem. Uh, and it happens to be, in the first century, it happens to be Good Friday. And so as Levi Schwartz is taking the stroll, he comes upon Golgotha, Mount Golgotha, otherwise known as Calvary. And there he sees three crucified people. Now, would this first century Jew, Levi Schwartz, would he... Look at that, look up at that, that, that scene and say, wow, that middle guy, I can see that he is the full definitive revelation of God's character. And the answer is, of course not. Uh, Levi, he, he, he's just looking at the, the cross through, with natural eyes. So here, here's Levi. Uh, Levi, forgive me for what I'm about to do. Uh, here's Levi. Oy vey. All right, here we go. So he, he, he's looking at the cross, and all he sees is a crucified criminal. So he, he, that's all that the cross communicates to him, is an ordinary crucified criminal, no different than the criminal on his right and left, no different than the thousand other criminals that the Romans crucified that week, right? So that's Levi. That's what Levi sees. Give him a tooth here, and a little mouth there. How's that? A little mustache, maybe? Okay, no. I said, so... Um, now, let's suppose I want to help Levi out, and so I, I get in a time machine. I'm going to go back to that first Good Friday and talk to Levi. Of course, that's metaphysically impossible, but it's a story, so work with me here. So I, I go back in time, and I say, uh, Levi, you know, that, that guy in the middle there, that crucified criminal, uh, he's actually the full definitive revelation of God. And Levi would go, you know, oy vey, that's, that's ridiculous. L'chaim, that's ridiculous. Uh, look at God's God, and that, that, that's a human up there. And God is beautiful, but this is hideously ugly. The guy's beaten beyond recognition. It's grotesque to look at. And God is, is holy, but, but we Jews all know that anyone who hangs on a tree is, is accursed. Uh, to be crucified is accursed. So this guy's the opposite of God. He's cursed, but God's holy. He's ugly, but God's beautiful. He's a human, but God is God. Now here's where the conversation could get interesting. Because I would want to say, what is it that I see that he doesn't see? And I try to explain to him. I go, you know, Levi, here's the thing. In a couple of days, that guy's going to rise from the dead and he's going to send forth the spirit. And that spirit, if a person's open to it, that spirit's going to open your eyes to see that there's a whole lot going on up here that meet, more than meets the eye. There's a lot going on behind the scenes that, that your natural eye can't see. And, and, uh, and, and, and so, uh, uh, you know, Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 3 that uh, the spirit lifts the veil of our minds so that now we can behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, so, but it's not the surface it's not what the natural eye can see that reveals God. When you look at the surface of the cross, all you see is an ugly, God-forsaken criminal. 
But it's what you see, it's what faith can see going on behind the scenes that becomes, becomes the revelation of God. When I look at the cross, it's, I see the surface, and the surface is ugly, and the surface reflects sin. But this reveals God to me because I see God. God is the one who comes down and reveals himself through the cross. Uh, I see God stooping an infinite distance to take on our ugly sin, to bear the ugly sin of the world, and to therefore take on an appearance that reflects the ugliness of that sin. Uh, and so, it, it, and it's, it, while this is supremely ugly, this is supremely beautiful. It's the distance that God crosses to become our sin and to become our curse. That's what reveals, that's what makes the cross the unsurpassable revelation of God. Because he couldn't have gone further than he actually went. So it's what faith can see going on behind the scenes that reveals God. Not the surface thing. The surface mirrors the ugly sin to us, but seeing behind, what faith can see behind, going on behind the scenes, that's what reveals God. The distance that God crosses to come into this. And if Levi is open to it, the Spirit will empower him to see the exact, exact same thing. Now, if, if the cross reveals what God's truly like, it reveals what God has always been like, including what God was like when he breathed Scripture. And he breathed all Scripture for the ultimate purpose of pointing to the cross. So, if you breathe all scripture for the purpose of pointing us to the cross, and God's always been cross-like, then doesn't it make sense to ask the question, uh, when we read the Bible, maybe we should ask, where else might God reveal himself the way he reveals himself on the cross? Where else might God uh, reveal his true beauty by stooping to bear the ugliness of the sin of the people that he's dealing with, and thereby taking on an appearance that mirrors that ugly sin? Where else, as we're reading the Bible, might we have to remember that it's not the surface that reveals God, but it's what faith can see as it looks through that sin-mirroring surface to see the stooping God, the beautiful stooping God who bears the sin of people in the background. Where else might we come upon pictures of God that on the surface are, 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 are ugly, but they become beautiful as we by faith look through them to see that God was not above stooping to take on that ugliness, to bear that sin. You know, the, the, the cross is revoltingly beautiful and beautifully revolting. It's revolting on the surface. It's hideously ugly because it mirrors sin, but it's beautiful because God was willing to bear that sin. In the same way, we should read the Bible expecting that there might be pictures that are ugly on the surface, but they become revoltingly beautiful when we, by faith, see what God's doing in the background. And folks, this in a nutshell, this is the, the, the core, the foundational piece uh, for how I would interpret violent portraits of God. When I come upon a portrait like Deuteronomy 7.2, which says, you know, show no mercy, utterly destroy the entire population. When I come upon portraits of God like that, it's not the surface meaning of the text that re tells me about God's character. Because I know God's character. I know it perfectly and, and, and on the cross. And, and the, the character of God that's revealed on the cross is not one that would say, show no mercy and I'll slaughter you if you show any mercy and I want you to kill all the babies and make sure that, that, that you, can, you can spare the virgins to enjoy the spoils of war. No, the surface tells me a whole lot about the sin of the people at the time. It tells me a whole lot about how, people at the, how, how Moses and others are viewing God. Which, by the way, uh, and I'll say more about this next week, these warrior portraits of God look very much like what everyone else thinks about God in the ancient Near East. When, when, when they give uh, Christ-like portraits of God, they contrast with everything that you find in the surrounding culture. But when they ascribe violence to God, 
those portraits look very much like what's found in the surrounding culture. Sometimes they'll even take material that we found in the other culture and they'll, they'll, they'll borrow it. They plagiarize it and they just switch out the name of that God for, for Yahweh. So it tells us a lot about the culture at the time, the way people are viewing him. Nevertheless, and it's ugly, and it's a testament to how low God had to go to stay in covenant relationship with these people and, and to, and, and to uh, bear their sin and to remain in solidarity with them. But Deuteronomy 7.2, as well as all the other ugly portraits of God, it's still completely God-breathed for the purpose of bearing witness to the cross. Because, in fact, it reveals God the same way the cross reveals God. Because I, now that I, since I know what God's character is really like, that he's a, he's a stooping, sin-bearing God, as I come upon a portrait, and the surface is so conflicts with the character of God revealed in Christ, that I now can see that that reflects the sin of the people that, that God's dealing with. But what reveals God to me is that I am able to look through the ugly surface to see God stooping to bear the sin of his people. I, it's not the surface that reveals God's character to me. That, that reveals the sin that God is bearing. But as I, by faith, knowing the kind of God that God is, he's always been like this, uh, I see God bearing the people's sin. Even though I, I see the beauty of a God who is willing to stoop to this distance, even though his people see him like this, he's going to remain in covenant with them and therefore share their guilt, as it were. Uh, I see the beauty of a God who, who doesn't coerce people into having correct views of him. Uh, a God who always works by means of influence, which is exactly what the cross reveals. Uh, a God who meets people where they're at and will stoop to enter into solidarity with them exactly where they're at in order to gradually, slowly bear their sin and lead them in a direction where they can begin to receive truer conceptions of him. But this is why he, he bears their sin and therefore takes on an appearance that mirrors their sin just like he does on the cross. And so Deuteronomy 7.2 is revoltingly beautiful and beautifully revolting for all the same reasons that the cross is a supreme example of revolting beauty and beautifully revolting. Uh, it's the same God revealing himself in the same way in both, in, in, in both instances. And so these ugly portraits of God uh, are, as I look at them with a cross-informed faith, they become testaments, historical testaments, that God has always been the God who's revealed on the cross. He's always been, he didn't start being a sin-bearing God on Calvary. He's always been bearing people's sin. He didn't start appearing ugly on Calvary. He's always been willing to appear ugly to stay in relationship with people. Uh, and that's how these hideous, violent portraits of God actually bear witness to the cross. The, the ugliness of the portrait bears witness to the ugliness of the cross. But the stooping God that faith alone can see behind the cross, well, that's also what we see in these portraits. And so all of them are precursors to the cross, uh, pre-advertisements of the cross. Coming in the future is a God who fully will now bear the sin of the world and take on an appearance that reflects that. And that we can see he's been doing all the time. Now, that's just my opinion. Uh, if it works, fine. If it doesn't, now, I know you have a lot of questions, and we'll be addressing some of these questions as we go, go through. Uh, but, and so I encourage you to come back. But here's what's not just my opinion. And that is that whatever you do with these violent pictures of God, and I know that this has been a hard message for some folks to listen to, because I was really kind of wailing on the text. And I don't usually do that here, uh, but sometimes it needs it. And so, uh, but, 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 but what, how, whatever you make of that, 
Uh, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus because he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of what God's really like. He is the, the one who says, if you see me, you see the Father. Uh, the fullness of the Godhead was revealed in him, Paul says. All of the fullness of the Godhead was in him in bodily form. Everything that makes God God was in him. He's the one word of God. There's not a lot of them. There's only one. He's the, he's the one image of God. There's not a lot of them. There's only one. And, and so uh, when it comes to thinking about God, whatever you do with all this, Lock it in that God looks like Jesus Christ dying on the cross for you, ascribing unsurpassable worth to you and every other human being that he's ever created because he's a God of perfect love, love as revealed on the cross. Amen? Would you stand? All right. Well, there's my first volley. Uh, yeah, if it fits, it fits. If it doesn't, that's fine. As we go out of here, though, can we do it as a people who are, whatever, however you solve that problem, you trust in the character of God that's revealed in Christ and you aspire then to take on that likeness and replicate that love to all people at all times in all situations. No ifs, ands, buts, or fine print. If you agree with that, say amen. amen. God bless you guys. Go out and love on the world.